Every year we come around to this place where we spend some time talking about our Savior, especially as we have it marked on our calendar to remember his death and his resurrection. I'm excited to be in Psalm 22. We've spent two two sermons in there already, although it was just one week. Uh, last Sunday, it was Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And if you want to catch up to the missing ones, uh, you will find them on our website. We put all these sermons on there for you to um, catch up if you don't get the chance to be with us. So actually, this is sermon number three from Psalm 22 today. It, it is a, a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of David in a very serious uh, time in his life where he was absolutely sure he wouldn't survive. But the words that pop up on the page are the words that the um, gospel writers use to say things like, and this was fulfilled in Christ. We have words about him being pierced in his hands and feet. We have the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We have the words, And they divided up my garments among them. This is a chapter that we call, uh, it's, it's got a Christological, it speaks of Christ, uh, Christological viewpoint. But these are the words of David as well, as he's expressing a very anguished moment in his life. So we're going to look today at a handful of verses here. In the middle of the psalm, well, not quite the middle, uh, we're going to start with verse number 6. And today we read through verse number 9. This evening we'll go further into this text as well. But here in verse 6 he says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag their heads, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he that brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. One more verse. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Heavenly Father, help us with this passage today. We... we, uh, walked into a deep and a dark and a difficult place when we seek to understand these words. But we pray that you might help us understand it and again show us how great you are in the midst of such anguish. Of all things, Lord, we ask that our attention be drawn quickly to our Savior, for much of this speaks of the sacrifice that he endured on our behalf. And this will prepare us, Lord, this morning for a time of remembrance when we pass this cup and this bread and remember how Christ died for us. Work in our hearts today, Lord. It's a very sobering sight, and yet one that is necessary for us, that we might understand the full depths of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I call this the opinions of God and man 
When you go through a passage like this, uh, David expresses some pretty intense things. But there is another event that uh, this day marks for us, and that is the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, as Steve has already mentioned here this morning. That was prophesied, that Jesus would enter into the city. That's some uh, 500 years earlier by a prophet named Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, he writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now that prophecy stated that there were responses to the coming of Christ on that donkey. It called for them to rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly. The, the, even in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word greatly is, is excessively. Even if used for violent. I don't know how you match that with being happy. But a violent joy. Interesting picture, huh? Um, very intense. A, a, uh, I guess you could put the word intense in front of that and make it seem what it ought to be. Matter of fact, it's only used one other time in Scripture. The combination of rejoice greatly. That was when the wise men saw the star. That's the same phrase of that. And, and there was one, um, one commentary on the origin of words that it was the, the kind of joy where you're jumping up and down. And I've always tried to match that with the wise men. And it just doesn't match the flannel graph. Uh, but um, this is the word that they use here in Zechariah, how we ought to respond. If we were there when Jesus rode into the city, we ought to rejoice greatly. And the second thing is said was shout in triumph. And that's an interesting word, the concept, shout in triumph. It comes from the word, the original word, to split the ears. That's loud. The thing that I, I try to compare that to is when your team wins by a football touchdown right at the last second, and it's the biggest game of the year, the fans, how they get so excited and shout. The, you go to uh, basketball games and Sometimes they have that, that meter up on the, the display that they're trying to get you to yell loud enough that you, you know, well, I guess they want you to break the, the monitor, huh? Um, but they, they want sound, lots of sound. This is the word, shout in triumph. Shout in triumph. It's a call. God actually made for the people to do that when Christ rode into the city. And the third thing it said, after it says, Rejoice greatly and shout in triumph, it says, Behold your king. Behold your king. Look at him. Look at him. See him. Who is this one that has entered the city? Matthew 21. Let's go there first. Matthew chapter 21. And look at the uh, recording of this event. It's fascinating. There are 
four different Gospels, and each of the Gospel writers will have an element of a story that another one doesn't. Sometimes one would speak of one event, and, and the next one will not. But all four Gospel writers write of this moment, when Jesus rode into the city. And in Matthew 21, it starts in verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem, had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a colt, or a donkey tied there with a colt with her. Untie them, <coughs> loose the donkey, and bring them to me. We have a little joke in my Greek classes. The word luel is the word we, we use for all of our verb tense endings we have to memorize, and there's a, a whole mess of them that they learn over the course of two years. And luo means to loose or to destroy. And for some reason, my students love to put destroy on their answers for quizzes. I destroy, you destroy, he, she, it destroys. And they, they prefer that definition. And I said, that would be fine for my quiz, but you can't put it in this verse. Because it says to loose the donkey, not destroy the donkey. And I always remind them, you've got to be very careful how you use that little word, luo. Uh, he says, loose the donkey, untie the donkey, and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. That's from uh, Isaiah, but also you saw it in Zechariah. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds were going ahead of him. And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. If we were to pull up Mark's gospel on this, we would find practically the same words. If we were to pull up Luke in chapter 19, he had, adds a couple more phrases to this. Because in Luke 19.38 he says, they were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When have we heard that before? The angels at his birth, right? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teachers, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I would have loved just to have heard that once. The stones crying out. I always think when it comes to praising the Lord, would you like to be outdone by a rock? He says, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones will cry out. John adds this in his Gospel, chapter 12, verse 15 through 19. Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. 
So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Very fascinating to look back and see what was happening on that day. You know, as we understand this, it wasn't but a few days, less than a single week, that there was an entirely different response to Jesus. The Pharisees, who had been building this anyway, because of their jealousy and fear, it says in Matthew 26, verse 67, Religious leaders, Caiaphas, the high priest, and all those with him, they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. Matthew 27, verse 26, you had Pilate's part in all this. He released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. There were bullies there as well. We called them soldiers. And it adds that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garment back on him and led him away to be crucified. That's just a few days after. And here's the response that I think strikes some of the, the hardest blows. Matthew 27, starting in verse 20 and going through verse 23. These are perhaps the same people, the same voices, the same mouths, the same tongues that proclaimed him their king when he rode into the city. It says that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds, the crowds, to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he says, Why? What evil have they done? But they kept shouting, shouting all the more. Crucify him. Crucify him. Before it was rejoice. Now it's reproach. Before it was shout. Now it's scorn. Before, behold your king. Now they blaspheme the very one that rode into that city. Pilate saw that he had accomplished nothing, Matthew tells us, but rather that a riot was starting. So he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us, and on our children. They despised him. 
They despised him. That was prophetic, by the way. Isaiah 53 had recorded these words. In verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. That means contempt. That means they considered him despicable. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. We did not think of him as any account. The words literally speak that when he came by, they would turn their attention another way. They would not even look upon him. And if that's not the worst that it can be, this might be. The very next verse in Isaiah says, Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We figured that he deserved it. What a change of events. The opinions of man. (laughs) We've been taught all the way through life, haven't we? Don't trust the opinions of men. They turn on you so quickly. This is true here. Isaiah 52 verse 14 said that he was so marred in his appearance, he no longer looked like a man. Charles Spurgeon has a marvelous commentary on the book of Psalms. Marvelous. When we read these words that David wrote in verse 6 of Psalm 22, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Spurgeon said this, This verse is a miracle in language. How could the Lord of glory be brought to such abasement as to be not only lower than the angels, but even lower than men? What a contrast between I am and I am a worm. Yet such a double nature was found in the person of our Lord Jesus when bleeding on the tree. He felt himself to be compared to a helpless, powerless, downtrodden worm, passive while crushed and unnoticed and despised by those who trod upon him. He selects the weakest of creatures, which is all flesh, and becomes, when trodden upon, writhing, quivering flesh, utterly devoid of any might except strength to suffer. This was a true likeness of himself when his body and soul had become a mass of misery, the very essence of agony, and the dying pangs of crucifixion. Man by nature is but a worm. But our Lord puts himself even beneath man on account of the scorn which is heaped up upon him and the weakness which he felt, and therefore adds, and no man. I am a worm and no man. When we talk about the anguish of a soul, David here is writing these words originally, and and we realize he's in trouble. Stephen's expressed such words, the the anguish of his soul. This psalm has been referred to as the execution psalm. And this is what David initially thought when he wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For in it there is a great conflict of opinion. 
the original words that we read of David when he was loved and adored by the people. Go back to a time when when David would serve Saul. And it said that he prospered until Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistines that the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Isn't that an interesting picture? David, in a sense, a triumphal entry, coming back from a victorious battle. The singing, the shouting, the joy, the love for him. And mingled in the midst of that is a growing jealousy. Do you know whose it was? It was Saul's. It says, And Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. That evil jealousy was set on the stove to boil. Spears were thrown. Traps were laid. Eventually David's on the run. And here all of a sudden, look at the change in his words. What he had said before and heard before was all in praise to David. And now look at his words. I am a worm. I am a worm. What a picture that is. I'm unworthy as far as men is concerned. I'm a worm, not a man. He once roared like a lion. Now he says, I'm a worm. Actually, the word for worm in the Hebrew is the word maggot. Not very pleasant, is it? There's another concept that there's a certain grub, they say, that uh, they would harvest these grubs on purpose because when they crush them, they produce a particular color from what oozed out of them, I guess blood and whatever else was within the grub. That color they would use to dye clothing with, a particular crimson color. The value of the grub was found when it was smashed. David says, I am a worm. You know, the grub had more value than David. Now, his assessment might very well be right in the fact that uh, when we consider ourselves in our own sinfulness, we're not much greater than that, are we? The old song that we sang for years, uh, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would he devote his that sacred head for... Now, this is where we always hesitate. Because... Growing up, you and I, we always sang a certain word right there for such a worm as I. Newer versions of that song has replaced that word and they put for such a sinner as I. As if the worm is so despicable, we don't even want to sing about him. So we replace the worm with something a little more, well, even sinner isn't a nice concept, but it seems to be a little more acceptable in human circles. 
than to be called a worm. And that only shows you again how despising worms are. That we should replace them even in our songs. So I always think that's an interesting spot when I listen to folks singing out of their hymn book. And if you've known it from worm, you sing worm and the other sings sinner. And, and there's always that interesting, you know, tension in the room for a moment. But we get over it. He was a reproach. A reproach of men, it says, despised by the people. That picture in Isaiah, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows. Despised by the people. That's a far cry from David has killed his ten thousands. Now you hear despised, despised. Now, opinion is hard to swallow when it's like this. When you hear it and you, and, and you, you, well, the response that we have personally when we hear something aimed at us that would be like that, we're, we're crushed by it, but we're not done. You try to swallow that and that's hard, but mix in a little mocking with it as well. In verse 7, all those who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head. You could just picture it, can't you? The mocking. And they mocked Jesus. David said he knew mocking. And then add a, a cup of spiritual sarcasm. Spiritual sarcasm. Oh, he used to say that he trusted the Lord. So, commit yourself to the Lord, they say. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Because he delights in him. That is such an interesting thing. Coming from a group who is crucifying the Savior, they, they are the ones who've done it, and all the while they're saying, oh, if he's so spiritual, why doesn't he call God down to help him? Incredible that they should say such a thing. They are the cause of his agony. And then they mock him in this spiritual sarcasm. It says in Matthew, the passage in 27, which goes through the crucifixion, from verse 38 on through verse 49. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Where did Jesus hear that formula before? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple. The angels will catch you. If you are the Son of God, fall down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Where has he heard these words before? Satan himself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest, it says also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. 
Really? I don't think so. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he says, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. The ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Quite a scene, huh? I keep flopping back and forth between the stories of David and the story of Christ. But David is one who boldly stated his trust in the Lord, didn't he? He killed a lion. He killed a bear. He killed Goliath. And yet his testimony was not covered up at all. He simply walked in front of everyone and said, I do this in the name of the Lord of hosts whom you, you are mocking. Remember how open he was in his statements? Everyone knew that he trusted the Lord for those victories. Everyone knew that. Now, take a twisted spiritual scorn and listen to the words of Saul. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a gate with double gates and bars. What an incredible picture. God has delivered him into my hands. Probably the same thought going through the chief priests. Same thought through the scribes and the Pharisees. Same thought to the crowd. They mock this one on the cross and think that he's the failure. <laughs> and God has given him to us. What a picture. What, what a twisted spiritual viewpoint. Have you ever noticed how skillfully and how sinfully words can be used by mankind to destroy other mankind? There's a song that's on the the radio that I hear quite often speaking of words. It says, they are made, they made me feel like a prisoner. They make me feel like I'm set free. They make me feel like a criminal. They make me feel like a king. They lifted my heart to places I'd never been, and they dragged me down back to where I began. Words can build you up, and words can break you down. They can set a fire in your heart, or they can put it out. Words. That's what we've been looking at here this morning. Words. The opinion of man. We used to say those little words. Sticks and stones. They break my bones, but words can never hurt me. <laughs> words are hurtful. The mouth is a weapon. James calls it that which can set a fire. There's a definition of, of gossip and slander as tongue murder. So, ooh, that's pretty intense. 
the anguish of a soul under a barrage of painful words is what David is expressing here in these simple thoughts in verse 6 and 7 and 8. And he says, these are the opinions, God, that I hear. These are the opinions that I hear. And I like the way verse 9 says, yet, don't you like that? He's got a second opinion, folks. Yet, let's see what God has to say. He who brought me forth from my womb, you made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Even at his lowest point here, he has now forgotten the works of God on his behalf. He says, you have given me life. You have given me faith. You have given me a foundation. You are my God. I like the way he comes back to this. Even in the worst of times, he comes back to this. See, the world calls for death, but they cannot drown out the giver of life. The the world seeks to shake us free of our faith, but to do so, they have to wrestle us from the hands of God. The world desires to erode our foundation, but we have a bedrock resting place in the Lord. They seek to dissolve it with judgment of who we are, and it's simply God who we trust. The world will have us believe that God has left us without help, without hope. Our trust was in vain. Our God has no heart. Our God cannot hear. Our God does not care. There are two opinions in this passage. David outlines it in the darkest moment. We see it so clearly reflected in the life of Christ. The opinion of man, David, you are worse than a maggot. The opinion of God, I am your God, David. I made you. One comes with scornful words, and I can't help but think that the other comes with sweet words. Instead of rejoicing, they turn to reproach. Instead of shouting, they turn to scorn. Instead of beholding, they turn to blasphemy. And yet, we have one who cares for us. And Jesus knew that too. There on that cross, he knew. He knew his Father. And he knew his Father loved him. Simple phrase here. God began his care over us from the earliest hour. We are dangled upon the knee of mercy and cherished in the lap of goodness. Our cradle is canopied by divine love and our first totterings are guided by his care. The psalm begins with my God, my God. And here, not only is the claim repeated, if we were secured by omnipotent tenderness, Surely we would have no cause to suspect that divine goodness will fail us now. The picture, I know, is quite pronounced. But here we have before us the bread and the cup that Jesus said, This is my body which is given to you. This is my blood which is given for you. A reminder to us every time we take of this, of our Lord's death. His death is a 
frightfully cruel thing. And for us to sit in judgment of those who caused it, we can simply recall that he died for our sins too. I'm afraid to think that I would have been among those voices who scorned him and reproached him. And yet I sure love his mercy. This is our reminder today. As we partake of this, I I bring this to your attention as I do often when we do this. The cup and the drink that we share with one another is not based on membership, whether you're a member here or not. It's not based on those things. It's based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you know him as your Savior, this is for you. If you do not know him as your Savior, let the cup and the drink or the bread pass by. But when you let that pass by, think about what you're doing. There's an invitation here, and there always is. And we give it to you once again. Jesus Christ died for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That gift is yours to take. It's a free gift from the Savior. And as we talk about Him, and as we realize how sinful we are, I'm so glad we have a Savior. And that's what He's done for you and for me. And you can receive him right now. Just call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved, Scripture says. You need a Savior? We have one. We're going to remember what he's done for us. As the men come forward here, if you know him as Savior, participate. Not only with a heart that remembers, but with a heart full of gratitude.